0: We're going to be in the Book of Colossians, chapter four. If you want to go ahead and flip there, I'm going to use uh, I'm going to use a relationship to help convey what is going on today. But before we start that, I want to say that I do not believe in the concept of a single soulmate for someone. That may be fighting words, and we can discuss that afterwards. That's fine. But for me, the math just doesn't make sense. There's 3.5 billion plus women on this world how am I going to find that exact person that which I am perfectly compatible with and then we would be the same age and we would live in a similar place and we would ever get the chance to meet each other. To me, the logic of it just doesn't hold that I have one soul, soulmate that I have to marry and that only by marrying that person will, it be, uh, will I be happy. I think it creates unnecessary expectations. I think that it creates problems when we have problems with our spouse because, well, shouldn't you have been perfect for me? No, we're all broken individuals and two broken people don't make a perfect relationship. So I don't believe in a perfect soulmate for you. But on the same note, and Corlin is working with kids today, but I will say this. From the very first time I ever met Corlin there was something different about her. I was intrigued. I was interested. I will not say it was love at first sight, but it was deep interest and longing to be around her at first sight and first interaction. But let me tell you, I messed it up. So we met two days before school started at the University of Alabama's campus. We were hanging out with some friends. We met and we played Go Fish that whole night while everybody else talked. But see, I messed it up. About three weeks into school, we had spent a decent amount of time together, and I was scheduled to go to a lunch at a fancy dining hall, um, because that's fancy, right? I was going to a nice dining hall on the campus, and it was going to be me, Carlin, and a friend of mine. I had to back out of that lunch. Carlin swears that it was because I was spending time with another girl. It was not. But I backed out of that lunch, and Carlin and our friend went. The friend happened to be a boy who also happened to be very interested in Corlin. And so I missed my opportunity. That lunch lasted like two and a half, three hours. And soon after that lunch, they started dating, freshman year, fall. I hung around though, all right, I didn't give up. I can remember about two months into the semester, a month after they started dating, I went to a tailgate that her parents were at and I went to the tailgate for the football game, and as I was leaving, I remember vividly exactly where I was, and I looked at my friend who was walking with me. He's like 6'4", and I'm like 5'2", so I remember going, well, Zach, at least I'm in good with the parents already. She's dating another guy. I've known her for 45 days, and I'm already thinking this. So they they end up dating, um, and then in December, they end it, in January, we happened to be at a conference together. Carlin didn't know I was coming because I signed up for the conference six hours before I got on the bus to go to Atlanta. Carlin comes in, her mom's dropping her off, and she will tell you the story to this day that she heard from her, with her car window shut, Carlin inside the building, she heard Carlin screaming my name when she saw me. There was definitely an interest and an excitement to be around one another. We played, I played it a little slow over that course of January, and then in February we went on our first date. Why do I tell you that story? We're going to build on that story, but why do I tell you that story? Because what I was looking for and what I missed at the very beginning of the semester was an open door to pursue that relationship. All I needed with Carlin, because I knew from the very first moment of meeting her, was an open door because I was going to step through. Okay, transition here. Hold with me, all right? This is where my college students back in the day would make fun of me. This is exactly what Paul is asking for in chapter 4, verse 3. Let's read verses 3 and 4 together. He says this, You've been praying yourself, but now at this same time pray also for us. Why? That God may open uh, to us a door for the Word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison. Why does he pray for this, or why is he asking us to pray for this? That I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Okay, so let's look at verses 3 and 4. Paul is saying, this is how you need to be praying for yourself, and then he says, This is how you need to pray for me. Paul has already shared with them in chapter 1 how he is praying for them. He is praying that they will be filled with knowledge. He is praying that they they will walk in a manner pleasing to God, that they will be strengthened by God's power, and that they will remember their salvation. He says, I have been praying this for you. Now I'm asking you to pray for me. Pray that I can speak clearly and convictingly and compellingly to the people that God is opening the door for me to speak to. Paul says that, pray for me to have this open door, this opportunity to share the gospel, the mystery of Christ. What is that? It simply is that God has, through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, brought salvation to all people. No longer is there an insider group of the Jews and then the Gentiles, no. No longer is there a separation in the church between male and female, slave or free, but all are in Christ together. Then he is saying, well, you give me a, a, an opportunity to share that message. Paul has an interesting understanding of open doors. You know, if I said, hey, God, pray for an open door, I would want this, this building filled with people at the brim, right? I, I want a large audience. I want a, a, a deeply financed ministry. I, I want maybe for Paul, it's like I just want to get out of prison, right? Like I'm all locked up. I got closed doors all around me. You would think that's how Paul is praying, but that's not really it. In Philippians chapter one, verses twelve and thirteen, it'll be on the screen for you. Paul is, actually says, "I don't really mind the opportunity prisons affording me." He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, and that what has happened to him is he's in prison, okay? Me going to prison has actually served to advance the gospel. Why? Because verse 13 says that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. He is saying, I'm getting to be an example to people I'd have never had a connection with. I would have never been able to share the gospel with. I would have never been able to tell who Jesus is and what he has done, except that I'm now in prison and they're taking care of me and I can't help but speak to them about it. See, Paul has a really weird understanding of open doors. He views his imprisonment as a blessing, not a curse. As a way to reach the unreachable. Paul has a really weird view of open doors. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. This will be on the screen as well. Verse 8, Paul says, I'm going to stay in Ephesus. Hey, Church of Corinth, I want to come see but I'm staying in Ephesus until Pentecost. Why? For a wide open door for effective work has been opened to me. And there are many adversaries. There's a rich field for harvest, and it's going to be a lot of work. It's fertile soil, and it's got a lot of weeds. See, Paul says there's an open door, and he doesn't care how much work it is, because his mission and his goal is to simply be obedient to the opportunities that God sets in front of him. Oftentimes, we look at Paul and go, he is some super Christian. If only we could be like him. No, Paul is obedient to what God puts in front of him. And Paul would even tell you, no, I'm not a super Christian. I just have a super backing. Because Paul will ask the church of Corinth, the church of Colossae, The church of Galatia, the church of Ephesus, the church in Philippi. He will ask all of them to be praying for him. Paul knows that his mission of sharing the gospel, he knows it is difficult, but he also knows that he has the support and the prayers of all of these other churches on his behalf. He has the support, and so he can lean into this. Verse 4, he says, here's what I want you to pray for me that I may make it clear which is ought, which is how I ought to speak. Clarity matters. It doesn't matter if I got up here and spoke for 25 to 30 minutes if nobody understood anything I was saying, it doesn't matter. You have to speak in a way that can be heard and be listened to. It's not about having the tightest argument to bully someone with information into believing, no. Paul is saying, I need prayer to make it clear to each individual that I'm sharing with. The message of the gospel is good enough. Paul knows it. It's good enough that we were hopeless and we have hope because Jesus Christ died to save me? That all I have to do is believe in him? There's no better message that anybody else in this world is offering. There's no more lasting or eternal inheritance. Winning the lottery will fade but salvation will not. Paul says, will you pray for me that I can speak clearly who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and how you can follow Jesus? Will you pray for me that I can make it clear who Jesus is, what he has done, and how to follow him? He says, I need the wisdom to speak, not some formula, not some script I can go door to door with. I need the wisdom to be able to speak to every individual in a clear and concise and convicting way. Now, I think most of the time when you look at this passage, I think most people stop at verse 4. What they would do then is they would throw up on the screen for you a picture of a missionary, or two or three, and they'd say, here's how you can pray for that missionary. But Paul doesn't stop at verse 4. That's fine. That's good to be praying for the missionary. I'm not hating on that, but Paul says, I'm not the only one speaking. I'm not the only one going. I'm not the only one living this message out. Verse 5 and verse 6 is where we're going to sit the rest of the day. Verse 5, it says this. Walk in wisdom. He's talking to you. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be seasoned, I mean, always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each question person paul says i need you praying for me and then he quickly changes over and he says but also you need to be walking in wisdom you need to be making the best use of your time you need to be using gracious speak seasons with salt and you need to be providing answers to people i read this line this week and it it makes so much sense the original quote says this and i'll, I'll maybe make it a little smoother the original quote says the reputation of the gospel is bound up in the behavior of those who claim to have experienced its saving power. I'll say it a little more clearly here, maybe more simple to read. The reputation of the gospel is directly tied to the reputation of those who believe it. What does that mean? Your reputation affects the reputation of this church and of the global church. It affects the reputation of God and it affects the reputation of Christianity. When outsiders watch people who claim to be believers live selfishly, slander one another, spew hate constantly, do poor work, treat their wives terribly, hate their children, or spend no time with them, what is the reputation of the gospel that is being promoted? Listen, you represent the gospel. Those of you who claim to believe it and claim that it has changed your life, you are a living reputation of it. What are we saying by the way that we live about our God? What are we saying about the spirit we claim that dwells within us? By the way that we live, what are we saying about the mercy and the grace we received when we are not willing to give out mercy and grace to others? Our reputation is tied to the reputation of the gospel. Whether you like it or not, you're a missionary. You're an ambassador of God. You're a messenger of hope. Whether you want to, whether you like it, whether you think you're qualified, you are. You are the promoter of this message, and your reputation affects the reputation of the gospel very clearly. That's why so many people speak ill of the church. And the church is a place that is feeding more people, that is helping more people, that is giving and charitable to more organizations than any other organization, and yet they say they hate the church. Why? Because they hate the people that go to the church. Because the people that go to the church have treated them with hate. The reputation of the gospel is tied to our individual reputations. How we live matters. And so Paul says, here's how you are to live. Walk in wisdom, use your time well, speak graciously, and provide answers. Okay, I'm coming back to the Carlin story. I told you, I thought immediately Carlin was special. I didn't really know what to do. I wasn't very uh, good at dating previous to her. I dated somebody for two months and broke up with them on an email. Not very good at dating, okay? Christmas was coming up, so I got ahead of it. Uh, December 5th, just said, we should probably stop this. I'm not good at this. But see, here was the issue. I had hung around Corlin that whole semester, even while she was dating someone else. But now, once they stopped dating, I was in the friend zone, okay? And you gotta figure out, how do you get out of the friend zone, okay? It, It seems like a good place to be, but it is a place where crushes go to die, okay? So how do we get out of the friend zone? I got wise. All right. I learned her class schedule. And at two from, from 2 p.m. to 2.50 p.m., she was in a building called Gordon Palmer, which was right across the street from my dorm. She got out at 2.50. I didn't work on Friday afternoon. And so I would go and loiter in the stairwell of Gordon Palmer. And then the second that the people started flowing out of her classroom, I would then walk close to it where a uh, campus newspaper stand sat. She thought I just really enjoyed the Friday edition of the Crimson and White. I literally picked it up and then just threw it away once I stopped seeing her. But see, here's what I was doing. I got wise. And so I thought through some strategy. I organized a plan. I coordinated a rendezvous and I took the opportunity to then make plans with her on a Friday afternoon. Some of you will say, well, why didn't you just text her? Well, they cost $0.10 cents of text back then, so you had to go see each other. You can decide if I was a stalker or if I was sweet, all right? That's up to you. But that's what I did. See, I was trying to be wise. Paul is calling us to care this much about the gospel, to care this much about seeing and seizing opportunities with those who do not believe. Paul is telling us we need to walk wisely. We need to put ourselves in good positions. And we need to live our lives in a way that outsiders see it and want to know more about it. Our life should look different. Our life should be different from the world because we believe that Jesus really lived, he really died, and he really rose again. And because he rose again, we rise again. And so everything we do in this world, we don't really care about or we don't have to worry about from the standpoint of what if I fail because we know we have a future that is success. We know we have a future that is promised, that is better than anything this world can offer, and so we don't get so caught up in failure here. We live differently. Michael Frost says we are to live questionable lives. That's a negative word, but I love it because it makes people go, why is he doing that? See, my neighbors... I can't use coworkers because my co-workers are ministers, but my neighbors and people around I see, you know, when I'm coaching soccer or doing this, they should look at how I love my wife, how I treat my child, how I listen to their conversations, how I help them with their needs. They should go, something is different. And the only thing I can assume is he's given his life to Jesus. I've told you before, I don't hesitate to tell people what I do for a living because I want to be a positive voice for the gospel. Not because I'm perfect, I'm not. But because I want to be a good taste of Christianity to people. We are called to walk in wisdom. He says, make the best use of your time. Maybe your translation says, redeem the time. As I uh, uncover the true meaning of this, it really literally means to snatch up the time. It's a term used in the marketplace, and the best understanding is to treat this like a deal that can't be passed up. So think with me today. You had a good week, and you want to treat yourself, so you go to Walmart, and you're going down the ice cream aisle, and that Ben & Jerry's is just calling your name, right? And so you go, you know what, I had a good week. I'm going to grab a pint of Ben & Jerry's. I deserve it. You grab it and you go and you check out and nowadays we all have to check ourselves out. We, they don't check us out anymore, right? So we're scanning it and you scan it and you notice that the Ben and Jerry's rung up for one cent, okay? If you're like me, you finish checking out and then you walk back to the ice cream aisle and you get, grab that same flavor thinking, okay, maybe this one's the only one that's one cent and you may, just as a hypothesis, grab another flavor, right? You go back to the checkout line and you scan it, one cent and then the other flavor's one cent. If that's the case, I'm buying as much Ben and Jerry's as I have freezer space for. I may even go buy another freezer, to be honest, right? I'm going to buy, I'm gonna give it away. It is too good of a deal to pass up, right? That is exactly this word. Make the best use of your time, snatch it up. Seize the opportunity. Take advantage of what is here. One writer writes it this way, another negative word, exploit. He says, exploit each opportunity. What does that mean? When we are in a conversation with somebody, we take the opportunity to go, man, this is what God's teaching me. Man, this is what my church is doing. Man, this is uh, this is what I've been praying for. And this is how, like, let me tell you this story. I cannot believe she was dealing with this, and her life was changed. I can't help but tell you about this. Snatch up that opportunity. Seize the day. Weave in, God, into your daily life. This is not a passive posture of living, but it is seeking out ways strategically. Like I was going and meeting her and loitering in that stairwell, just waiting that I may get an opportunity. Verse 6, and we'll end here today. It says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you might know how to answer each person. You've probably heard the quote before, preach the gospel and when necessary, use words. I like the quote from a standpoint of, yes, our lives should preach the gospel. But let me tell you, words are necessary. You're not going to save your hell-bound friend simply because you wave at him when you drive by. You're not simply because you smiled at the cashier when she was checking you out. Words got to be used. So what should our words look like? They should be kind and caring, compassionate and honest. They should be helpful. Is this how you are known? Is this how you speak? During the pandemic, it was just a really low moment and just just dark and depressing time. And Apple Television released a show called Ted Lasso. And I think it was just a perfectly timed show because in a really dark time, it was kind of a beacon of hope and goodness. And Ted Lasso, if you know the story, if you don't, I'll catch you up. He was an American football coach in Kansas who gets hired to be a soccer coach in England. He knows nothing about soccer. And and he goes over there, and, and he's a fish out of water, and there's definite difficulty and failure, but the whole time... His demeanor and the way he speaks to people is kind, is caring, and is compassionate. And he's just an example of how we can use our speech in a gracious and uplifting way. Because honestly, this world needs heroes. It needs protagonists. It needs good men and women to respect and look up to. You can point to those people from your childhood, but are you being that person now? See, it's so easy to choose to joke or to belittle rather than build up, to criticize rather than champion, but believers must be different. We need to have gracious speech. It says seasoned with salt. The speech of a Christian should not be dull, tasteless, and boring. We've all had that salt that wasn't, I mean, that chicken that wasn't seasoned, right? You power through it, you know, put some barbecue sauce on it and just hope you can get over it. But too often, we offer the world a saltless gospel. What do I mean by that? We offer a bland, boring, uninspiring, dull message. It should be interesting and lively and colorful while still being all truth. The good news of Jesus Christ is actually good news, guys. I think we're so used to it, we've forgotten. It is good News. It's not boring news. It's not dated news. It's not dull news. It's life-altering, eternity-changing, can't-keep-it-in type of news. And we have to be ready to answer, he says. We need to know what we believe. I've been to too many funerals or been around too many um, families walking through loss. And they have just such a snippet understanding but have not lived out the truth in any way. They've not cared about what God has said or lived their life in relation to Him in any way. And then at the funeral, they're just like, oh, for sure, she's in heaven. And I hate, I don't, I don't want to just sit there and break it to them, but why? How can people go through life with just some random hope that in the end it may work out? We need to tell people because we have the answer. The answer that stood the test of 2,000 years, that stood the test of science innovations, that stood the test of all of these people trying to fight against it. We have the answers. We need to be able to share them. I want to end with one last story. After pursuing Carlin for about a month, she was no longer dating anybody. We were hanging out constantly. Then I shakily had that question that seems like such a big deal then and feels so silly now. And I said, will you be my girlfriend? She said no. (laughs) She would argue, she said not yet. She said no, but she meant not yet. See, why do I tell you that? Because you know I didn't stop at that. You know today we're married. Eventually she became my girlfriend. Eventually, you know, if you buy her a nice enough ring, they'll say yes to that. Um, And then they'll marry you and put up with you. But I didn't let that stop me. I didn't give up after after the first time I asked. And neither should you. We're called to walk in wisdom towards outsiders, using the best, making the best use of time is not a single conversation. There's going to be no's. There's going to be times of I'm not ready yet. There's going to be times of I just need some time to think about it. And that's okay. We don't give up. We, evangelism is not a single conversation, but it's a relationship of being watched and of speaking, of seizing moments here and there, of taking shots and you miss some and you make some but really it's a process of never giving up because what we're sharing changes lives let's pray